Let's get our Bibles out tonight. It is good to be in God's house tonight when we walked in here and saw the place covered with fire extinguisher dust. It was uh, the devil's intention that we wouldn't be here tonight. But thank Jesus and Sir Pro, we are. So get your Bibles out. We're in Ephesians chapter 1, and we're working our way through it tonight. Uh, every time I bite off a section of this to teach, seems like I don't get through but a few verses, so we're going to enjoy it and savor it. How many know when you eat a good meal, you shouldn't just not chew it and swallow it? Amen. There's some meals you should chew uh, not a little bit and swallow fast. Any, anybody ever had that? Gas station ham sandwich? You know, gas station sushi, any like, just swallow it and pray in the Holy Ghost as you do. But a good steak, you savor it, and that's what the Word of God is. It's meat for our souls. So we're in Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, I'm going to read, start in verse 7 and read to, looks like we're going to get through verse 10 tonight, 7 through 10. So Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. Let's thank God for the Word. And then we'll jump in and enjoy and savor every bit of it tonight. Father, we thank you tonight for this house, for this place, where we can come together and worship you. We're thankful for all the faithful people who come uh, to enjoy the word and to worship together, Lord. And we thank you for the word of God. Holy Spirit, open up our hearts and minds tonight to drink in all the truth and all the good theology and all the gems that you've hidden in the text here. Lord God, to encourage us, inspire us, to provoke us to godliness to stretch us, to have our faith be stretched tonight. Lord, I pray all of this will happen according to your word. And I pray it in Jesus' name. And the church said, Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, summing up all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth in him. And let's stop right there. That was more than we're going to be able to chew tonight. So we continue here in Ephesians. And remember, we said there were five in hymns in this passage, this text. Um, we, we're going to cover a few of those tonight. Uh, verse 7 gives us the second of the in hymns. Understand, as Christians, we're not just, you know, people disconnected, doing our own thing, living our spirituality. We are in Christ, if you're not in Christ, you're not a Christian. If you're not in Christ, you're not saved. You might be religious, you might understand some theology, but until you and I get born again and become filled with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we're not in him. There are many people who say, well, I'm spiritual, but what about Jesus? Are you in Jesus? The minute you become saved and you become born again, you know that you know that you're in Christ. You know that it's Jesus who saved you, Jesus who chose you, Jesus who ran after you, Jesus who pulled you out of the fire. Come on. Come on tonight, Wednesday night. So these in hymns mean something. Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is trying to show us the Christian life is not an independent life. It's not, you know, a self-serving life. It's a life that's in Christ. 
Verse 7 gives us the second of the five in hymns in this passage. Now, it says, in him we have redemption. Now, when you begin to understand the word redemption, you're going to get excited tonight. You don't look excited now, but if we dig into this redemption idea, you're going to get excited because you and I have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Amen? In him, we have redemption. Now, what does it mean to be redeemed? You know, we were lost in our sins, disconnected from God. We were headed for eternal judgment, but... Jesus was sent by the Father to, to grab a hold of us and redeem us. Why? Because even though we were lost in our sin, he still saw each of us had value. Listen to me tonight. You're valuable. Oh, yeah, maybe the person on my right or the person on my left, but not. No, each and every one of us are valuable. We were valuable enough that it's true that if we were the only ones lost, Jesus would have came and died on the cross just for us. Come on, I know you've heard, you've, had that, you've heard that before, but until we really ingest that and believe that, then if I was the only one, my soul is so valuable to God that he would have sent Jesus. Wow. Redeemed, redemption. We need to look at it. We were lost. We were disconnected from God. We were headed for eternal judgment, but God saw our value. Now, all of us were like a gold coin that had fallen into the sea. We were lost. You know, you, if you've ever had money, maybe, you know, you walked walking down the street as a kid, you had a handful of coins and you tripped and they fell down the sewer. Man, you had money and now you lost your money. Let me ask you something. Was the money that fell in the, the sewer grate, is it still worth something? Is it still money? Yeah, but you don't have access to it no, anymore, so it's lost to you. Now, think about this. You and I were like a lost gold coin that fell into the sea, and, and now we're out of circulation, but we still had value. Jesus dove into the sea of humanity as he was born of a virgin in a manger and came as a baby. He dove into the sea, and he came to seek and to save that which was lost. What did he do when he dove into the sea? He found us, and he restored us by redeeming us by his blood. Come on, Wednesday night. Come on, Wednesday night. We've been redeemed. My favorite little story on redemption is this, and I want you to listen to it tonight. A boy made himself a little sailboat. He crafted it beautifully and meticulously. He worked on it a long time. He painted it to perfection, and when his sailboat was done, he took it out to the river to sail his boat. Now, as he put the boat in the river, he had a string on it, but the tide got too strong and the wind got too strong and that string broke and he had lost his connection to his little boat. Now, that boat got caught up by the wind and he ran along the shore as long as he could see it, but it sailed out of sight and he could not find a way to get his boat as it passed off into that sea, into that river. Weeks passed by. The boy had walked home. He was so sad that he lost his precious creation that he made. And after weeks of looking for it, he walked by a, a storefront and something caught his eye. In the window of that display case in the store was his boat. It was broken. It was missing paint. It was battered, but he could still see that it was his. The boy ran into the shop, and excitedly, he told the owner of the shop that that boat in the window was his, and the owner said, well, I'm sorry if you want it. It's going to cost you $10. The 
The boy didn't have $10. So he scraped up all the money he had. He collected cans. He raked leaves. He did a few odd jobs until he had earned the money. And when he did, he walked into that shop. He laid all that he had down on the counter, and he purchased back the boat he made with his own hands. Holding the boat in his arms, the little boy whispered, you are truly mine. You are truly my boat because I made you and I purchased you. Twice you're mine. And so is it with God. He created us, but we were lost to sin. Yet Jesus purchased us and redeemed us with his own blood. We are twice his because he made us and then he bought us. What an awesome way to understand redemption. Yes, he's our creator, but we were lost to sin. Yes, you know, we were lost and it wasn't his fault, but he was willing to pay all that he had, give his very best, his only begotten, to purchase us a second time. We're twice his as believers in Christ. We are redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Now, notice, you hear me saying it all over again, notice where our redemption comes from as you look at the verse. In him we have redemption through his blood. You know, when you're, when you're not a Christian and you hear someone say the blood of Jesus or the blood of the lamb, it's a little weird. But once you're in Christ, you know the, the power of the blood. You know the value of the blood, amen? And, and why are Christians always talking about blood? Because the blood of Jesus is the most powerful substance on earth. It's the only thing that has the ability to destroy sin's grip upon our souls. Come on, I'll never stop talking about the blood of Jesus, amen? I remember one time my son was in a, a Christian preschool and he drew a picture of Jesus on the cross and he had blood on Jesus and he had seen our, our Easter play many times. And the teacher was mad and she took away his drawing and she showed us, look what he drew. And, and she was like, look at all the blood on it. And I'm like, yeah, lady, that's the blood that saved us from our sin, amen? <laughs> she wasn't buying it, but I, I guess I should pray for her. We weren't offended by the blood. We were happy that he understood what Jesus did on the cross. So it's the blood of the lamb that redeems us. Without his blood, we remain lost, out of circulation. We still have a value, but our value is never realized till we're in Christ, till we're in him. The last part of verse seven shows us the amazing benefits of being in him and under the covering of his blood. Listen to verse seven as it continues. In him we have redemption through his blood. Listen, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Let's check that out a little bit there. So it's in him, it's covered by his blood, but then what's, what's the point of all this? Our sins are dealt with. It says what? We have the forgiveness of sins. What a beautiful thing it is to be forgiven. Did you ever do something bad and you were caught and everybody knew it, yet that person, instead of demanding their pound of flesh or wanting judgment, said, I forgive you. Wow, I've had people say that to me. I forgive you. What a, what a, what a blessing it is to be forgiven. Through his blood, we have forgiveness of sins. Don't let the devil rehearse your sins over and over in your head. Don't let the devil tell you what you did and what you've done. And Don't let the devil do that. Why? Because Jesus' blood has erased our sins. God remembers them no more. He cast them as far as the east is from the west. Amen. Don't, don't oh, am I, you know, when I did this and in my youth and I did this. Why are you still rehearsing that? 
Well, God, do you remember when I... No, I don't remember that. I see you in Christ, covered by the blood of the Lamb, forgiven of all your sins. If God's not talking about them, why are we talking about them? Let's stop and enjoy the forgiveness that comes through the blood of the Lamb. And so we have our sin dealt with, and that is a comforting thing. You know, some of us don't realize how important it is to be forgiven. Because, you know, we've been forgiven for so long, you know, we don't understand there's a world out there that feels shame and guilt all the time. And we don't have to have that. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In him, amen, when we're in him under the blood, there's no condemnation. What else do we have? The second benefit that we see here in verse 7, we've moved out from under God's wrath into his grace. Now listen, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't accepted Jesus and become born again, you are under the wrath of God. Anybody believe what I'm saying? Some of you are looking at me like, well, you're trying to trick us. No, when we're lost and we're unregenerated and we're not born again, we are under the wrath of God. Why? Because the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness. And when we're lost, the wrath of God is against us so that we will repent and accept Jesus. You know, a lot of people don't know this. Oh, I'm a good person. I'm spiritual. I know theology. Listen, until you are in him, until you're in Christ, until you're under the blood, you're under the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is not a fun place to be. Why? Because there's a resistance to everything in life. Why doesn't anything go my way? Why do I never get a breakthrough? Why do I never, you know, get a break? Why? Because God is resisting us so that we'll repent and not be lost for eternity. That's the purpose of the wrath of God. Now, listen uh, what the wrath of God says here in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10. Write that text down, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. God hasn't appointed us to wrath. Wrath is upon those who aren't in Christ, who aren't in him, so that they'll repent and come to Jesus. If you're fighting with Jesus, if you're fighting against God, if you're trying to live half in the world and half out of the world, if your mom is praying for you, just quit. Just quit. Give in and get right with him, amen? Because you know what? The wrath of God is no, living under the wrath of God is not a comfortable place to live. All of us can identify with this to some degree, and all of us know people who just constantly resist God and nothing goes right for them. So the wrath of God is removed, and now we're under the grace of God. What an amazing benefit. Our sins are forgiven, and now we're under the grace of God. Instead of God resisting us, he can now bless us. Someone say amen. Verses 8 through 10 show the redeeming grace and list some of its benefits. You know, God's grace upon us redeems us, and there are benefits associated with this. Listen to verse 8. It says, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Okay, let's talk about that a little bit. It's defining the grace of God. The grace of God is abounded to us, and it's abounded to us in wisdom and in prudence. Uh, so we need to take a look at that. You know, it says, which he made to abound toward us. We didn't earn God's grace. God made it abound to us. We didn't find a way to access God's grace by our good works or our good attitude or our good looks. Hello? If that was it, none of us would be saved. 
We didn't acquire God's grace through some fountain of spiritual enlightenment. This is what Eastern mysticism is all about. Enlightenment and understanding and theology and knowledge that makes you transcend and blah, 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 blah. Never going to get there. That's not the way we get God's grace. We don't earn it. We don't access it by our works. We don't get it through enlightenment. God's grace is upon us because he, ex- he himself chose to extend it to us, and that's the only reason. Look what it says, which he made to abound toward us. God made his grace abound toward us. He didn't say shape up. He didn't say shower off. He didn't say look right and act right and earn it and be good and then maybe. No, he chose in his sovereignty to let his grace abound to us through Jesus Christ that whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. God did that. So his grace comes to us just by a decision of his will. With God's grace, we've been given two tools to maximize its effect in us. The first tool is this. God's grace gives us wisdom. See, look what it says here. Which he made to abound to us in all wisdom. Say wisdom. Say it again. Say it like you mean it. I like it. Wisdom. You sounded smart on that last one. I like that. Wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. That's what wisdom is. See, a lot of people have knowledge, but they don't know how to apply that knowledge. Have you ever met a smart person who didn't have any common sense? Have you ever met a smart person that didn't have any social graces? Wisdom without, you know, wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. The world is all impressed about knowledge. Well, this is a smart guy, and that's a smart guy, and look at all the diplomas, and look at all the things before the name. But you know what? The the truth is you can have a lot of knowledge and no wisdom. Wisdom begins with fearing the Lord. I don't care how smart, what your IQ is, how many diplomas. If you don't fear God and you don't serve God, the Bible says the fool says in his heart there is no God. Amen? So while the world celebrates the intellect, God celebrates wisdom. Wisdom is the proper application of knowledge that comes to us through the grace of God. You know, how come you Christians know how to do things and figure things out and and know how to do spiritual warfare and know how to protect your hearts and know? Why? Because it's the wisdom that God gives us by his grace. You know, some of us act a lot smarter than we are. You know, I wasn't good in school. I didn't get good grades. I graduated in the bottom of my class. But then you got saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. And God gave you a measure of wisdom. And all of a sudden, you have discernment and understanding and the proper application of knowledge. Your friends come to you and they list their problems. And the Holy Ghost speaks through you. And you give them wisdom. And it changes lives. Man, I wish there were some Christians here tonight. Amen. If that ain't happening to you, after service, you can come to the altar and you can get saved. But when you get saved, the grace of God gives us wisdom. Not only did he give us wisdom, which is the proper application of knowledge, he's given us a measure of understanding of the scriptures, of spiritual common sense that we didn't have before we came to Christ. Now, if you've been walking with the Lord for any period of time, if you've been sitting under the word of God in a place that teaches it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you have wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit just because you're a child of, the, of God. But he didn't stop at wisdom. He also, the second tool he gave us was prudence. Now, here are the biblical definition of the word prudence. And, and you know, there again, the text says, in which he made his grace abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. 
Wow, the dust is getting me. I'm, I'm working hard up here. That's better. So let's talk about prudence. What's the, what's the definition of prudence from a biblical perspective if you study that word? Prudence is the ability to govern and discipline oneself because of the use of reason. So with prudence, you take that wisdom and you apply wisdom with the proper application of knowledge, and now you can govern and discipline yourself. You see, it's the spiritual fruit of self-control. Where before you came to Christ, maybe you had no self-control. Maybe, you know, you fell for everything. You were driven by lust. You, you couldn't control yourself. You couldn't control your eating. You couldn't control your urges. Come on, don't raise your hand. It's not the altar call, but I'm just telling you, that's where we were outside of Christ, amen, driven by our lust. Now, all of a sudden, in Christ, we have a measure of self-control. We're able to discipline ourselves. We're able to choose to not do the things that are displeasing to God. Come on tonight. Amen. I know none of us are perfect. Sometimes when I preach a point like this, I can feel you clamming up out there because, oh, pastor, if you knew how much I've blown it and how many times I've failed. Listen, but you and I are better than we were when we started because we're in Christ. Amen. Because we're in him. None of us are perfect. Don't let the devil condemn you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're better than you were when you started, and he's not done with you yet. You and I are under construction, amen? You ever see a building when they first start working on it? Maybe it's a building that they're refurbishing. They rip everything off of it. It looks like a disaster, doesn't it? But then months later, if you've got the right contractor working on it, it's restored to beauty again. God's working on us. He's given us wisdom. He's given us prudence. Now, we can govern ourselves. We can discipline ourselves. The Holy Spirit mentors us. We have a level of spiritual self-control that we never had before. We avoid sin. Instead of running towards sin, when we used to be driven by lust, now we're like, man, I don't want anything to do with that. Hey, you want to come out with us? You want to get drunk? You want to go to the club? No, I don't want anything to do with that. What is that? That's a changed heart that God's given us wisdom and prudence by his grace so that we can be conformed to the image of Christ. Wow. That was only one page. We got more. Verse 9 lists another benefit of his grace here. It says, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself. Let's unpack verse 9. Another benefit here is, you know, of grace is what? God's will is now revealed to us. Having made known to us the mystery, say mystery, of his will. As believers, we have access to the Holy Spirit to know both the general and specific will of God for our lives. You know, before we were in him, before we had a relationship with Jesus, we didn't know the will of God you know, we didn't know what we were here for. There's people walking around tonight going, I don't know why we're here. I don't know where I'm going when I die. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing right now. Christians never have to struggle with that. We know what we're supposed to do. We're here to praise God, to share the gospel, to enjoy the benefits of the body of Christ. Amen. And someday we're going to go home to be with Jesus and be with him forever. We know his will, and by the Holy Spirit, we know the general will of God and the specific will of God. Let's talk about those two things. The general will of God is perfectly revealed to us through God's word. Listen, if you want to know the general will of God, read the scriptures every day. 
The Holy Spirit will show you what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to act, how you're supposed to talk, what you're supposed to think. Hello. You see, a lot of Christians look worldly and don't look like Jesus. Why? Because they don't get enough of the word. They get five minutes of the word, one blurb of the word, a little thing that they remember from Sunday, and hours of TV, and hours of computer, and hours of work. We need the word of God to know the general will of God. The more you read God's word, the more you'll know what he expects of of you, what he wants you to do. And listen, the general will of God applies to every believer, every Christian. We couldn't understand it before we were in him, but those things are clearer clearer to us now every day. The general will of God includes how we should live, what our duties are as believers, the moral standards that apply to all of us, Uh, All of these things are found in the word of God. And the more you and I ingest the word of God, the more we will know the general will of God. So that when someone asks us to do something that conflicts with the general will of God, right away we'll know, hey, that's not for me. Amen? No, I I don't gossip. No, I don't complain. No, I I don't give myself over to sexual impurity. No, I I, I control myself. No, I, I belong to Christ. The general will of God. Now, the specific will of God is a little different. It's more personal, and it reveals uh, to each of us our unique gifts and calling. See, the specific will of God for Rick is different than the specific will of God for you, fill in your own name. God's called me to do certain things. He's called you to do certain things. You can't say, well, I'm going to do all the things you do because I like your job. No, you got to be you. You got to do you. You got to do what God's called you to do, amen? Do you ever see that somebody copying somebody else? God didn't make you a copy. He didn't make you a counterfeit. He made you an original. You're unique. You have a unique and special purpose. Don't try and fulfill somebody else's purpose. That's their job. If you fulfill theirs, who's going to fulfill yours? So the general will of God, it applies to all of us, but the specific will of God is unique and it's individual. And and each of us have a unique and special will, a special call on our lives. The Holy Spirit guides us in that step by step, if we'll follow him, if we'll honor him, if we'll submit to him, amen? So the grace of God gives us access to the will of God, both the general and the specific. But notice verse 9. In, in the verse, Paul calls God's will a mystery. And I want you to pick on a, up on that. Why would the mi- will of God be a mystery? Because unless we're in him, we can't know the will of God. We've got to be in Christ to know the unique, specific, individual will of God for our lives. Amen. That's why people who don't have a relationship with Christ who say, well, I know what I'm doing here. I know where I'm going. I know... Listen, until you know Jesus, you don't really know any of that. So it's in him again where we find the grace to know the will of God. Now, when we were outside of a relationship with him, the will of God was a mystery to us. But in relationship with him, the will of God is no longer a mystery to us because the Holy Spirit reveals it to us step by step. This Uh, is a beautiful verse and it displays how exciting how well how excited and enthusiastic god is as our father to reveal his unique will for us to us listen to what the verse says according to his good pleasure which he has purposed in himself 
You see, God is not grudgingly telling us what he wills us to do. He's not, you know, giving us a little crumb one at a time so he could trick us into doing his will because he knows we don't want to. Hello? But look what the word is saying here, that it's his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. We were made on purpose. We were gifted and designed for a unique purpose. And God, our heavenly father, is thrilled to reveal that purpose to us. There are so many people walking around missing the purpose of God for their lives that when, when you and I submit to him and, and, and just thank him for his grace and open ourselves up to him by the Holy Spirit, he is so excited to show us what he made us for, amen? It thrills him. Mm, well, I was excited about that. Did you ever hear somebody say, I was made for this? Maybe a sport, maybe, a, you know, they were in the military, whatever it was, but they, they know they found what God made them to do. And they say, man, man, some of you are looking at me like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know how I got here tonight. I don't even know where I am right now. Some people have to, man, I was made to do this. Man, everything, that's what God wants us to discover, what he made us to do. So we can be just about as excited about doing it as he is excited about showing it to us, amen? Oh, the world will tell you what to do. You need to do this and you need to do that. You need to make a pile of money and you need to be this or that or this or that. And God says, no, 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 no. Forget about all that noise. Come to me. It's my good pleasure to reveal to you what I made you to be and who I made you to be, amen? Well, it's wonderful to know that God's excited uh, about revealing his will to us and that we have access to it. It's no longer a mystery to us by the Holy Spirit. You know, we can discover it. If you're sitting out there tonight and you're thinking, I, don't need, I still don't know what I'm here for, Seek the Lord. Chances are you're doing what you're here for. It's just that you haven't, he hasn't revealed it to you to in a way that you can acknowledge that you're exactly where he wants you to be doing exactly what he made you to do. And the enemy's confusing you. You're like, I don't know what I'm here for. Well, you're doing what you're here for because he's guided your steps up to this point. And you need to just discover that you were made to do what he's called you to do and just be excited about it. So... Uh, Verse 10, I'm going to try and work through verse 10 here. It mentions, uh, we're going to get a little theological here. Verse 10 gives us the third out of the five in hymns. And uh, this one comes at the end of the verse here. It says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, in him. So the in him on this one is tagged on to the end. It's laid out a little differently. But I want you to look at verse 10 carefully. And I want you to see that in the beginning of the verse, it mentions a word. And the word is dispensation. And this word dispensation is linked to a hermeneutical and a theological viewpoint that's called dispensationalism. How many of you have sat in church long enough that you've heard the theological term dispensationalism? Wow, few of you. All right, you're going to get edumacated tonight. So he, he, he says this word dispensation. Now that word dispensation gives way to a, a, a theory of interpreting Scripture. That's why it's hermeneutical. We're going to talk about hermeneutical. Uh, hermeneutics is the proper interpretation of Scripture. You know, you don't just read the Bible and say, this is what it means to me. No, this is not, you know, this is not uh, a literature class. 
The word means what the, what the Lord wants the word to mean, amen? So hermeneutics is the proper, you know, understanding of Scripture. It's the proper interpretation of Scripture. And also there's some solid theology here, and that word dispensation gives way to a theory that is used in Christian theology called dispensationalism. Now, you might think, well, why do we got to talk about this? Well, because the Holy Spirit put that word there. And we're going to talk about it. Well, it's too heady. It's too lofty. I want to say this. As mature believers, we should at least have a rudimentary understanding of the theological ideas of Scripture. I got two and a half amens and three people look asleep. Okay, you and I need to know the basics of Scripture. If you, oh, I don't want to know. I just want to have an entertaining sermon. Can you just, you know, do so? Listen, if you don't get the knowledge of the scripture and you don't understand the, the, the roots that are supposed to anchor us, you're going to get tricked and deceived by all the deception that's out there. That's why our young people sit in service and then they go off to college and some egghead atheist professor tells them, oh, blah, 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 blah. And they go, yeah, that's right. That's right. I believe that. Not what Pastor Rick preached for 15, 20 years of my life. Now I believe this guy. Why? Because you don't have an understanding of the doctrines of Scripture, and that's why I'm going to teach stuff like this. So when you get deceived, it's not my fault. <laughs> That's a little self-serving. I'm kind of I'm just messing with you. But I want you to know the truth so you don't get deceived. So you and I have to know the basic doctrines of the Bible. We need to know the basic doctrines. And even the, the, the things that are out there in Christian circles that pass for theology, we need to know them so we can be instructed in the truth and we can pre be protected from false doctrines. So let's get a working understanding of dispensationalism. Uh, dispensationalism... Uh, is, is a, a, a kind of a, like a theory or a system here that, that's applied to Scripture, and, and it's a way to interpret Scripture. So let's see if we can make this simple so that we can understand it. Number one, dispensationalism is a hermeneutical system. It serves as a template or a way of viewing and interpreting Scripture. So that's the basic understanding of hermeneutics, how to interpret Scripture. It's also a theological system in that it teaches biblical History is best understood in light of a successive administrations of God's dealing with mankind by a series of dispensations. So each dispensation is a way that God dealt with mankind in a certain period of human history. Okay, everybody get that? It's simple, but let's keep going. Dispensationalism maintains its fundamental distinctions between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the New Testament church. There are some churches that teach, well, Israel's lost and God's done with them, and now the church is the new Israel. That's false theology. It, it, it becomes anti-Semitic, and it's not biblical. Jesus is not coming back to New York. He's not coming back to L.A. He's coming back to the Middle East, to Jerusalem. He's going to come back. He's still dealing with the Jewish people. Any church, any leader, any pastor that tells you the Jews are cut off and God is done with them is not reading from the same Bible that everybody else is reading from. Because when the church age is over and the church is raptured, God is going to turn his full attention off of the Gentiles back onto the Jews and the Israel, the apple of his eye, will be the focal point of all the world. And that's where Jesus Christ will return to establish his millennial reign. Okay, so the fourth thing about dispensationalism I want you to know is this. It emphasizes prophecy and end times prophecy. 
It teaches a pre-tribulation rapture prior to the second coming of Christ. So you could see as evangelicals, dispensationalism is right up our alley theologically. Uh, the most common understanding of the dispensations break down this way. There are seven of them. If you're taking notes tonight, uh, you can just write down these seven things, and they are the seven dispensations that we need to know about. And remember, this is how God deals with mankind throughout history. The first dispensation is the dispensation of innocence. And innocence started, uh, you know, with Adam, and it went to Adam's fall. So that's Genesis 2. Uh, this was, you know, re remember, when Adam walked the earth and Eve was there, they had fellowship with God. They had a face-to-face -face relationship with him. They walked with him in the cool of the garden. Why? Because sin had not entered the equation. So this was the dispensation of innocence. Realize the minute sin entered in, that dispensation was over. Why? Because now sin separated God and Adam and Eve from Adam and Eve, and their innocence was shattered. That leads to the second dispensation. These are all, you know, they're all connected together. They're all sequential. The dispensation of conscience. And this is from Adam to Noah. God dealt with man according to his conscience. That's Genesis 3 to Romans 2. Uh, you're going to see Adam to Noah. God dealt with man. It was no longer innocence. Well, God, I want to deal with you uh, over the, you know, the, this idea of innocence. God's like, can't. Your innocence is shattered. You've in, you've inherited sin through Adam and Eve, and now you're born with sin, and so now you have to go with the inner conscience that I put in man. So the way God dealt with man in this dispensation was if you follow your conscience and do what your conscience leads you to do, you'll be right with me. This leads to the third dispensation, the dispensation of government. Oh, we all know how that works out. That goes from Noah to Abraham. During this time, God worked through the the governmental systems to keep man in order, to keep society in order. You know, not all government is bad. It's a necessary uh, structure within our, in our world to keep things in order. Could you imagine if there was no government to keep people in order? Do you see the way people drive now under penalty of jail and losing their license? I mean, do you see how people act now? The murder rates are skyrocketing all over the place. They're setting records. Why? Because the government has relinquished its, its divine job to maintain order in society and said, ah, we're just going to open the doors and let the nuts run the asylum. Oh, and it's working so good. But this system here, God was going to use the, you know, the, the order of society through Noah all the way to Abraham, and then that system obviously failed. God had to drowned him out. He had to flood the place, and, you know, uh, man couldn't govern himself. This led to the fourth dispensation, patriarchal rule. That's from Abraham to Moses. So God used godly men that he put in positions of leadership as the patriarchs, and under that dispensation, you know, you had to follow the leader that God put in place. If you did and you submitted to their authority, you could have relationship with God, uh, the next dispensation was the Mosaic Law. We all understand the law covenant where if you wanted to relate to God in that, you could, when you were under that system, you had to do it through the law. You had to offer sacrifices. You had to approach God in a certain way. You couldn't just say, well, I want to go by conscience. No, that was over. Man ruined that. Well, I just want to submit to the governmental authorities. I just want to pay. No, those systems were over. Do you see how one progressed to another? 
Now, the way God dealt with people in the garden and, and, or, or when Noah was around is different than the way he dealt with them under the Mosaic Law Covenant. Are you see, seeing how God relates to people differently in different times? That's the whole point of dispensationalism, the Mosaic Law Covenant here. When you were under that, you better show up with a sacrifice or you're not getting your sins covered. Okay, now thank God the Law Covenant gave way to the covenant of grace a new and better covenant. Man, when I say grace, you should start smiling because you look like your best friend just died out there. And that's what the law will do to you. But grace should make you smile, amen? Because now we're under this grace covenant here. Now the grace covenant happens all throughout what's called the church age. And the church age is what we're in right now. This is when God moves through the body of Christ in the earth, the church. It's no longer the patriarchs. It's no longer the law. It's grace. And the way God moves in this grace system is through the church. Now, when will that end? It will end at the rapture of the church when that dispensation gives way to the tribulation. That's a seven-year period. And the last dispensation is the millennial reign of Jesus Christ for a 1,000 years on the earth. Now, if you survive to this point and you're still awake, God bless you. That's dispensationalism in a nutshell. That whole theological system and theory and hermeneutic comes from this word here that we're seeing in our text. And the conclusion that I want to leave you with is this. For the most part, dispensationalism is a solid system and most evangelical churches support the majority of what it teaches. That being said, there are some churches that have pushed it to an extreme and made up some conclusions and some doctrines that are not biblical. So as with any man-made doctrine or man-made hermeneutic, you have to be careful. Some of this can get pushed out of balance. Did you ever notice that Christians can push good things out of balance? Okay, so let's just leave that there. I'm not going to get into you some of the flaws and fallacies that this has created, but just know the seven dispensations. Understand that God dealt differently with mankind in different seasons, and you and I should know that. So when somebody comes up to us and they start telling us, we're under the law, and we got to follow the law, and you got to get circumcised, and you got to go to church on the Sabbath day, unless you're a seventh-day, listen, we're not under that anymore. This is why we have to understand that when the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door, or the Seventh-day Adventists or whoever, we need to know solid theology so we don't just open the door and go, I'm a Christian, duh. I'm done. Three powerful phrases in verse 10, and we're going to conclude with this. Look at how verse 10 continues here. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, okay, so we understand dispensationalism. We understand the fullness of time. We understand how God dealt with people differently through the different time periods. Then it continues. He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. So let's just cover those three phrases. Number one, of the fullness of times. I want to say this. God has a timetable. God is a God of order. Oh, Pastor Rick, everything's spinning out of control. It's going crazy. God's lost his grip. No, he hasn't. God is in complete control even when it looks like chaos is all around us. God has a timetable. God has a plan. His plan touches every part of his creation, and it's all falling perfectly into place. I know we don't like 
what's going on around us in our world right now. In fact, if you do like what's going on in the world around us right now, you need to get an exorcism appointment. Because it's dark, and it's ungodly, and it's wicked, and I can't see how anybody in the body of Christ could be like, oh, well, <laughs> you need to get saved. You need to get some grace so you have wisdom and prudence, amen? Because even the world is going, what's going on? The world's talking about the apocalypse. So... We need to know that God's in control, that he has a timetable, he has a plan, and everything's going perfectly to plan. The Bible says when the wicked rule, the righteous groan. So if there's a little groan, groaning going on out there, so be it. It's biblical. But don't ever lose sight of the fact that God's in control of the fullness of times. Number two, the second phrase, he will gather together in one all things in Christ. Remember, it's in him. It's in Christ. And what's the point of being in Christ? That Christ would gather together in one all things. So Jesus is Lord over everything. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Amen. So what's the point here? He is our redeemer and he's systematically redeeming and restoring everything that has been lost to sin. What is going on in the world right now? What is going on in the heavenly realm? What is going on in the kingdom of darkness right now? Is there is a war going on to, to maintain control, but yet God is redeeming every part of creation till he brings it back into perfect order as it was before sin infected it all. That's what's going on. That's what, that's what Jesus is effectuating here. When they're up in heaven in Revelation and no one could read from the scroll and Jesus steps up and he reads from it and everybody's like, woo, thank God. What was that all about? Jesus taking back the title deed of the earth that was lost to sin and that Satan has dominion right now over the earth. Jesus is going to take it back. Man, I wish there were some Christians in here tonight. Amen. Oh, it's all falling apart, Pastor. No, it's all falling together. And, and he's what? He's gathering together in one all things in Christ. Jesus is going to take all the disjointed, opposing, warring factions of creation and culture and unify them in him. Wow. The last phrase I want to touch, the last part of verse 10, is both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Heaven and earth will ultimately fall into perfection. God is going to renew the heavens, and he's going to renew the earth, and he's going to restore them to the condition that he created them to be in before sin infected the world. So you and I say, man, the earth is messed up, and we're messed up, and we struggle with sin, and there's darkness everywhere. Don't fall apart on me now. He's got this, and he's putting it back together. And the heavens and the earth will bring glory to him in the end. You and I are going to be in the new Jerusalem with Jesus, where he's going to be the light for us forever and ever. That's not science fiction. That's not a fairy tale. That's not wishful thinking. That's the Bible. And it will happen, and we will see it with our own eyes. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, I just thank you for these three verses in Ephesians. I thank you for all the encouragement, all the understanding as we've talked about grace, as we've learned the tools we have and 
we talked about redemption and the, the benefits of being in him. Father, I thank you for the good theology we've been able to think about tonight, that we would understand dispensationalism and that theory that affects so much of our Christian doctrine, that we'd understand where we are right now is in the church age. We are under grace. And it's our job to preach the gospel to everyone, to every creature, and to make disciples of all men. So, Father, help us to be the church in the church age. Help us to function under grace, to have an urgency in our spirit, to share our faith with anyone who will listen so that we can see those who are lost be found, those who are in darkness be brought into light, those who are in sin become saints. Just as you did for us, God, use us to be evangelists in this church age to usher in every soul into the kingdom of God that wants Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. We thank you, Lord God, that we're your children, that you've got this all under control, that we're in an exciting time and an exciting place, and that you're using us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Give him praise tonight.